I'll ask you to turn this morning to Philippians chapter 2, please. Philippians chapter 2. And as you're turning there, I'd also like to add my words of welcome to all who have joined this morning. And also publicly to express my sympathy to those families who have been bereaved. We pray that great grace will be given. Philippians chapter 2, and we'll read the opening five verses and look to the Lord to give us help. Let's hear the word of our God. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind, let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Amen. With the word of the Lord open before us, we'll look to him once again in prayer and pray the Lord will bless us even as we gather around the things of God and around the scriptures of truth. Let's pray. Eternal God and loving Father, we thank thee that thou art our Father. We thank thee, Lord, that thou hast brought us nigh unto thee. Thou art not stoic, far off in a distance, but Lord, we thank thee that thou art near. And we thank thee, Lord, for the Holy Ghost, the one who is the Comforter. The words of Christ are so sweet, I will not leave thee comfortless, but I will come to you, I will be with you, and I will be in you. Lord, we look to thee for thy help and thy blessing upon the Word. We pray, O God, that thou would speak to our hearts, that thou would give us a teachable spirit. We pray, O God, that thou would come with mighty power, and we pray for O oh God, those that need thee to draw near unto them, we pray that great grace will be given, that thou, God, would show thyself, show thyself strong on behalf of thy people. And we pray, O oh God, now, and I pray as a candidate, I pray, Lord, for the infilling of the Spirit of the Lord, for the fresh cleansing in the precious blood, that thou would help me speak as thou would have me to speak. And I pray, O oh God, that thy people, whether here, whether online, whether in a DVD or CD at some time in the future, that, Lord, that thou would speak to our hearts and help us to be obedient unto what lies before us in Holy Scripture. Do us good now, O God. We lift our eyes heavenward. We ask this all in the Savior's precious and worthy name. Amen. There was a feature article in an edition of National Geographical, uh, Geographic magazine Concerning the Arctic Wolf, the author described how seven, a seven-member pack they had targeted several musk oxen calves who were guarded by 11 adults. As the wolves approached their quarry, the musk ox, oxen, they, they formed a semicircle and their deadly hooves were pointing to the rear and the calves remained safe within that semicircle during a long standoff with the predator. 
but a single ox broke rank, and it finally fled in panic, leaving the calves to the mercy of the predators. A skirmish ensued, and the adults, they all ran off, and the little calves were at the mercy of the Arctic wolves. Not a single calf survived. Now, the Apostle Paul, he warned the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20 that after his departure, grievous wolves would come in among them, not sparing the flock. Wolves continue to attack the church today, but they find it difficult to penetrate and destroy when unity is maintained. And this is the theme of which we have been considering here in this letter of the Apostle Paul to the Philippian church. We notice that instruction and application of this letter begins in earnest, really in verse 27 of chapter 1. Paul wants to hear from them that they are standing fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. He charged them, uh, he charged them how they were to live according to the gospel and the impact that it ought to have upon their life, and he majors upon Christian unity. Christ himself, of course, prioritized the unity of the church, and so does the Apostle Paul. It's a great concern of his heart, and having called for that unity, he begins to expand upon it in chapter 2. Now, we know that the original letters, they had no chapter division, so this is really just a continuation of what he had been addressing to this pal's battalion in the city of Philippi. The last time we were thinking from verse 1, the pillars upon which our unity is built. Really, we could call them the modus for our unity. And I pointed out that if we were to sum up verse 1 just with two words, those words would be since and then. Since this is true, then this ought to be the consequence among believers. Now, we noted firstly the pillar of consolation in Christ. Christ is the one who comes alongside His people to help us even in our time of need. He came to us when we were sinners, just as a good Samaritan came alongside that individual who was stricken and who was afflicted in the way. And He still comes alongside us and draws near by His Spirit in the Christian life. And since this is what we have experienced, well then, this is how we ought to live the one with the other. The second pillar was the pillar of the comfort of love. We have been the recipients of God's love, a superlative love, a love that has been shed abroad in our hearts. And since this is the case, then that love should flow out <coughs> to others. Thirdly, we thought about the pillar of communion of the Spirit. Since we've all been made partakers of the same Spirit, then surely there will be unity if we walk in that same Spirit. And finally, the final grounds for our unity was the pillar of compassionate mercy. Since the Holy Ghost operates for our good and for our comfort and for our blessing, then we are to do the same for others. So two words you can write over verse 1. Since. Since this is what we have received, then. This is the grounds for our unity. So that's where we got to the last time. And I said... Those are the pillars upon which our unity is founded. They're really the motives as to why you and I ought to be united. Now, this morning we're going to continue looking at verses 2 to 5, and we're going to look at them under the heading, The Marks and the Means 
of unity. The marks and the means of unity. Firstly, we have the marks of unity. Now, Paul here, he did express his confidence and his purpose in chapter 1, verse 25, that if he was released from prison and he could come again unto them, then through his ministry, anointed by the Holy Spirit, he would increase their joy. And just as he sought to contribute to their joy, he now calls on them to minister to his joy. He didn't desire any resources from them. He was not asking for anything personally, but he was asking them to do something amongst themselves that he cared deeply about. And that was the maintaining of Christian unity. This would give him great joy. This is why he says, fulfill ye my joy. Paul knew that a united people would be blessed by the Lord. You see, the apostle, he was already experiencing joy because of his association with the saints there at Philippi. We read of that in chapter 1 and the verse number 4. He, he prays and he makes his request with joy for those individuals. But there was one thing that was yet needed <clears throat> to make his joy in them complete. Now, every minister of the gospel seeks to be a blessing unto his people through his ministry so that their joy in the Lord would increase. And you know, that in turn, when he, he sees that, when he sees a congregation that is united in love for Jesus Christ, for the work and the things of God, well, that in turn then fulfills his joy. The apostle John, he wrote the words, he says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. And so Paul, yes, he had a measure of joy in them, but he wanted it filled up. He wanted complete joy. He wanted to hear, or if he was released, he wanted to go and see that there was a people that were united, that were one in the Lord, that were striving for the furtherance of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul states here, he really states that their unity would really be the icing on the cake, as it were, or the cherry on the top of the cake with his joy concerning them. Now, we must ask the question, what is unity? What does it look like? How are we to view it? What's its nature? What's its essence? How is it defined? Well, Paul gives four statements in verse 2 that define the marks of spiritual unity. He says, Fulfill ye my joy that ye may be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Now, these statements are very rich and are somewhat overlapping, yet each of them have a distinctiveness which is instructive, and we're going to look at them, each of them in turn. These are the marks of a people who are united, who are in unity. Now, the first mark of Christian spiritual unity is like-mindedness. Fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded. Now, the Greek verb that's used here, it simply means to think in the same way. And it's in the present tense, and that calls for this to be their habitual state, to, to think in the same way. Unanimity of thought is essential to true spiritual unity. We have to think alike. We have to have a common thinking pattern, a common concern. Now, this is not uniformity of thought. That is all having the same thought, but it's all having the same pattern of thought. For example, thinking in a matter that always asks the question, 
if I do this, will it be to the glory of God? That's what like-mindedness is, that we all have or do think in the same way. Not necessarily all having the identical thoughts. We're not, as it were, uniform, but we are to be united. We're different. We have different thoughts. We have different personalities. We have different ideas, but there should be that like-mindedness. We should all be thinking, as it were, in the same way, the same pattern of thought. See, Paul here, he's not talking about thinking about the same doctrine, the same cold hard facts about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. As, as we have seen, this wasn't an issue in the church of Philippi. You see, just because we can all sign the same doctrinal statement does not mean that we all think alike, that there is like-mindedness, that there's the same thought pattern. He wasn't saying to them that they needed to get their ethical and moral standard worked out and begin to think in the same way concerning those things. They didn't have any problems concerning those things in that church as they were in other churches. This is something beyond thinking alike in doctrine and morals and ethics. It means really having the same mindset, the same disposition, the same attitude, and the work and the witness of the Lord. This is a mark of unity, like-mindedness. Now, you can identify heresy. It's very clear when it's spoken. You can identify sin. It's very clear when it's done. But mindset and disposition of heart are hardened to identify because it deals with an attitude of mind. It deals with the inner man. Now, in saying that, if there is differentness of mind, if there is a different mindedness among the people of God, and that's the word I made up, but Paul often made up words, so I'm in good company. If there is a different mindedness in the people of God, it will be eventually seen in what they do. It's something that will not be hidden. It will be seen in fractious behavior. It will be heard in murmuring grumblings. It will be felt in a frosty atmosphere. Conflict and disunity comes as a result of a sinful attitude and people not thinking alike. Now, how are we to gain this like-mindedness? Is it possible to all have that common thought, to have that same thinking pattern in all our lives, i.e. it should be, I believe, will this, does this glorify God? Well, it is possible. But it's something that cannot be engineered. It cannot be orchestrated by man. This is something that we cannot force our minds to do. It is the Spirit of God who produces like-mindedness in His people. See, if I was to ask you, how many minds does one body have? How many minds do you have? Well, of course, the answer is one. And since we are one body, and since Christ is the head of that one body, then we are to have the mind of Jesus Christ. Paul wrote to the Corinthians there in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. If you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 in the verse 16, he wrote there telling them that he had, last words, but we have the mind of Christ. 
He was a man who walked in the Spirit. He was a man who was infilled by the Spirit. And so that Spirit, who alone knows the mind of God, produced in Paul the mind of Christ, the very thoughts of Christ, a Christ-like attitude, a Christ-like pattern of how to think. Now we can notice in the very next chapter, chapter 3 in 1 Corinthians now, Paul, he is addressing those who are not walking after the Spirit, but they're, they're walking after the flesh and the ways of the world. And what's the result of such individuals? We'll look at verse number 3 in chapter 3. For ye are yet carnal, for whereas there is among you envy and strife and division, and are ye not carnal and walk as men? And then there, ha- there is a fractious spirit among them, It says in verse 4, For while one saith, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are ye not carnal? The first mark of unity is like-mindedness, especially like-mindedness to Christ. He came not to do his own will, but delighted to do the Father's will. You know, if we always had the mind of Christ, then there will be always perfect unity in the church of Christ. And to have that mind of Christ, we must walk in the Spirit. We must be infilled with the Spirit, for the Spirit alone knows the mind of God. And He produces that like-mindedness in us. Now, the second mark of unity, if we're going back to Philippians chapter 2, or chapter 2 and verse 2, the second mark is that they would have the same love. And really the next three marks, they flow out of the first. Having the mind of Christ, well then naturally love will flow out from that. It's been said that love is the chief distinguishing mark of Christianity. The Lord Jesus Himself, He said in John 13 and verse 35, By this shall all men know, that ye are my disciples, if ye have loved the one for another. Now, by nature, we hate one another. And that old nature still wants to rise up within us. By nature, we hate one another. Titus chapter 3, in the verse 3, it tells us that, For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving divers lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, Hateful and hating one another. That's the old nature is to hate one another. However, when God saved us and He united us to Jesus Christ, He united us to one another and the love of Christ it gave us and enabled us to love one another. First John chapter 5 and the verse 1 it says, Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ, is born of God, and every one that loveth him that begat, loveth him also that is begotten of him. So if you love Jesus Christ, it's going to be natural that you're going to love one another. Unity is not only marked by harmony of thinking, but harmony of feeling. There is unanimity, not only of thought, but also of an affection in a people who are United, love for the Lord, love for the lady, love for the labor, love for the lost. Now, to have the same love, as we read there in verse 2, having the same love, it really means to love equally. To love each other equally. 
Now, on a purely emotional and sentimental level, having the same love for others, it is impossible. Because people are not equally attractive in their persons. I'm not speaking there about physical attraction. But maybe in their persons. And so emotionally and sentimentally, this same love, to love one another equally, it is not possible. However, agape love. And that's a love that is mentioned here. It is a love of the will. It's not of preference or attraction. It is unconditional and it's based, it's based on an intentional, conscious choice to seek the welfare of others and to desire their highest good. It is a love of the will. A love of the will. And that's the love that you and I have experienced, the love that God had for us of His own will. He loved us. There was nothing in our preference, nothing of attraction in us, and yet He chose to love us, and He sought our welfare and our highest good manifested in the sending of His Son. Paul knew these Philippians were filled with love. Because they were Christians, God's love was spread abroad in their hearts. In chapter 1, verse 9, He already prayed that they might abound more and more in this love. Here in verse 2, he describes love as being a mark of their unity. There can be no Christian unity without love. The same love. The third mark of unity highlighted by the apostle is that a people will be of one accord. Those who are united, they will be of one accord. Now, this is the only use of this compound Greek word in the New Testament, and it is one believed to be made up by the apostle. The literal translation would read this here, one-souled. One-souled, having their souls knit together. Now, what does that mean, having your soul knit together? Well, here we're talking about passion and desire. You see, if we all have the same passion for the extension of the church, then there will be unity. If we all have the same passion for the exaltation of Jesus Christ, then there will be unity. If there is one driving passion for the glory of God, there will be unity. If we all have the same passion, the same desire, the same ambition, well then we are naturally going to be of one accord. We're going to be one soul. It's when people are driven by other passions, other agendas, their own agenda. Well, then it's diverse ambitions that brings disunity into the church of Jesus Christ. When one passion governs a church, that church is united. The fourth mark of unity mentioned in the verse is that uh, united people, they are of one mind. Now, this is not a repetition of like-mindedness, for that's related really to attitude. This is related to purpose, and that's really fleshing out out passion. Four times in five verses here, we we have the use of the word mind. mind. And the idea is not so much of one's intellectual apprehension, but one's purpose, one's thought, one's aim, one's goal. And if we are united by one passion, well, then we're going to be marked by having one purpose, one goal, one aim. See, when we are marked by like-mindedness, that will be expressed by having the same love. 
And that one great love will be accompanied by a single passion, a passion with no personal agenda, which results in a unified people carrying out one great, eternal, glorious purpose, glorifying God in the extension of His kingdom. That's what unity looks like. That's it in its essence and its nature, like-mindedness, possessing the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. May those marks be in us. And may we cry to the Holy Ghost to produce them in us. So we have looked and considered the marks of unity, but secondly and finally this morning, the means of unity. The means of unity. Paul goes on to give practical instruction on how this unity is to be worked out in our lives, lives among one another. Means we are to employ in verses 3 to 5. Let's read the verses together. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. There are both positive and negative commands, things that we are to do and things that we are not to do. And Paul firstly tells them, let nothing be done through strife or feign glory. This is a negative, something we're not to do. We are not to do anything that will lead to strife and faction among the people of God. Some believe that the root meaning here of the word strife may have originated from the word hireling. And the idea of a hireling is a mercenary. It's one who does his work simply for money, for personal gain, without really regard or interest in the issues that are at hand. Everything that that hireling does is for the purpose of serving and pleasing self. Now Aristotle, he, he used this phrase, as it were, let nothing be done through strife. He used that word to describe the self-seeking purpose of a, of a politician who seeks to gain office by pulling someone else down. And that's what we see. We see strife and contention in our land and our nation because people have their personal agendas and their personal programs. When an individual becomes selfish, they literally then are at conflict with everyone else. You have to get your own way. You have to get your own gender. And there's no one else's that matters. That's what it means, and, and if that's the case, well then that will lead to strife. If you're the one who digs your heels and won't look at anyone else, let nothing be done through strife. You see, those who are selfish in that matter and think it's my agenda, this is the way, this is my opinion, no one else matters, and it leads to contention, it leads to strife. Well, that individual is not walking in the Spirit. Because strife is mentioned in that list of Galatians 5 as a work of the flesh. And so Paul tells them here, here's something you're not to do. You're not to do anything through strife, but you're also not to do anything through vain glory. Once again, this is another word that's only used here in the New Testament. You're not to do something for the empty praises of man. 
or for your own personal glory. Now, the word includes having the thought of having a highly exaggerated view of yourself. A person who claims to have the right opinion and the right way forward about everything, and they show that. This is the individual here. Albert Barnes, he said of this, he said, we're not to attempt to do anything merely by outstripping others, by showing that we have more intelligence, that we have more talent, that we have more knowledge, that we have more courage, that we have more seal. We are to do what we do by principle and with desire to maintain the truth and to glorify God. Now, the challenge is to ask ourselves this question, why do I do what I am doing in the service of God in church, in my home, in my life, in my workplace? Am I driven by self-centered motives? Even when I'm supposedly helping others, is it really for personal gain? Is it for self? Whether I express it outwardly or not, do I nurse resentment? Do I have a hump on my back if I don't get my way? Is that seen? If my hard work is ignored, my brilliant ideas are not followed. That's how we test ourselves to see if we're doing things for vain glory. See, verses 1 to 4, they're, they're one single sentence in the Greek. And instead of a full stop at the end of verse, verse 2, it should simply continue on, let nothing be done through strife or vain glory. And that teaches us that the oneness described in verse 2, it doesn't leave any room for selfishness or vain conceit. Paul proceeds to give the scriptural antidote for a selfish ambition. And for the one who's in pursuit of empty glory, he goes on to say, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Here is a positive means by which unity among the brethren is nurtured. Instead of being personally ambitious and personally vain, which is nothing other than pride, we are to maintain humility of mind. Humility is a handmaiden of unity. Where there is unity, there is humility. And where there is humility, there will be unity. Lowliness of mind. That's one word in the Greek. And it would appear in the secular word that up until this point in time, that the world had no word to describe this state of lowliness of mind. One man did say that neither the Romans nor the Greeks had a word for humility. The very concept was so foreign and abhorrent to their way of thinking that they had no term to describe it. It was only after the first centuries of Christianity, because this word came out of the church, it's only after the first centuries that pagan writers, they borrowed this term, and they always used it in a derogatory manner, especially concerning Christians, because to them, humility is weakness. That's the secular way of thinking. Self-assertiveness. Imposing my will upon something else. High self-esteem. But that's not the means to maintaining unity. We are not to think highly, more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. Paul wrote about that to the Romans, chapter 12 and the verse 3. We are encouraged. We are encouraged 
to think about others, greater than we think about ourselves. And how do we promote this humility in us? How do we get this lowliness of mind? Well, simply, you do as we're told in Isaiah, you look unto the rock whence you are hewn and from the pit that you were digged. You see, we're nothing but undeserving, ill-deserving, filthy, hell-deserving sinners. That's all we are. And when we have a right estimation of ourselves and we are in lowliness of mind, it's then that we'll begin to think about our brothers and sisters and we'll actually think, you know, they're much better than me. They're so much more godly than me. They're so much more Christ-like than me. So Paul tells them, here, look, or let nothing be done through strife or fee and glory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. He goes on to say in verse number 4, Look not every man in his own things, but every man also in the things of others. Also, the word here, it indicates that, yes, we're to be responsible and accountable and look after our own things, our own affairs, our own interests, but not to the neglect of others and their interests. In fact, we are to subordinate our interests to the interests of others. Now, that's a high standard indeed. That's a difficult command. And that's especially the case because our society, the days in which we live, those days have created self-obsessed, narcissistic, selfish, self-indulgent, egotistical materialistic people who can only think of their own things. And you know, that philosophy of the word, world can be so embedded in the Christian that they forget how to be self-sacrificing. They forget to seek unity by putting others first. And the effect is devastating in the church and it leads to disunity and division and disharmony. But to point out this regard, for other individuals is not the busybody attitude, but it's a general concern for their affairs. You see, if we concentrate on lifting others up, putting down ourselves will take care of it itself. Unity is maintained by humility of mind and heart. And that's why the apostle goes on in verse 5, and the following verses to speak of the model of humility. Verse 5, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And next time, Lord willing, will be Christmas Sunday morning, and how appropriate that'll be. Because Christ's humility is seen so striking in His incarnation. Paul wrote to the church at Philippi about unity. It would fulfill his joy to see a church going on united together, praying together with one passion, one purpose, one principle of mind. But he wrote to all their churches about it. He knew the importance of it. He wrote to the Romans, chapter 12, verse 16, Be of the same mind one to another. Chapter 15, verse 5, Now the God of patience and consolation grant you to be like-minded one toward another according to Christ Jesus, that ye may with one mind and one mouth glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He wrote to the church at Corinth, 
first chapter uh, of the first epistle, verse 10, he says, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind with the same judgment. He closed the second epistle to the Corinthians with the words, Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you. To the church at Ephesus chapter 4, he encouraged them to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Paul was a man who had the mind of Christ, and he knew the importance of unity among the brethren. In Acts chapter 4, Luke wrote these words, And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. Then he said that such a people had upon them what great grace, and they experienced great power. Great grace, great power. And is that not what we need? We need great grace in these days. We need great power. And that, dear friend, is a blessing of God. And they are both related to unity. The marks of unity. Like-mindedness. Same love. One accord. One mind. The means. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory. At all costs, brethren and sisters, avoid strife. Avoid strife. It's a work of the flesh. Now, that doesn't mean you can't put your point of view forward. As I said, it's not uniformity of thought. It's unanimity of a common thinking pattern. But avoid strife. It is the work of the flesh. It will scatter the flock. It will allow the wolves to come in, and they will not spare the flock. They will destroy our young. They will rip to pieces our children. With their philosophy and their thinking, we need to stand together. We need to strive. We need to be of one mind, of one heart, of one soul. And we need to get together as a people. Surely this morning we are united in grief. For a beloved family. But ought we not be united in prayer. In principle. In passion. And in purpose. And all our joy will be fulfilled as we see our God glorified in our midst. May the Lord bless His word to our hearts for His own name's sake. That self will be crucified and the Spirit of God will grant unto us the mind of Christ. O Holy Father, we bow before Thee and we pray once again, that the Spirit of God would search our hearts. And pray, O God, that Thou would help us to exhibit these marks of unity. Lord, it's something we can't orchestrate. It's something we can't engineer. 
Yes, we can organize things for fellowship and Christian friendship, the one with the other. And yet, Lord, this is an inward work. It's not something outward. It's inward. We pray that you'd work in our hearts. Help us, Lord, to have the mind of Christ. May the mind of Christ, my Savior, be in me from day to day with his love and power controlling all I do and say. Lord, remember us, O Father. Remember those who need special grace. We collectively lift them up before thee as one man, praying under one head that thou would bless those who mourn and sorrow. O Lord, bless this congregation. We don't want to be walking around miserable, putting out fires here and there. We want, O God, to have our joy fulfilled, linking arms, going forward together, seeing God do a mighty work. O Lord, hear us. Part us with thy blessing. Keep us safe in the roads, the treacherous conditions. Do thy will bring us out again this evening to hear the grand old gospel. Oh, may we be as one man sitting under the gospel tonight, hearts riveted, minds being transformed by the preaching of the word, hearing again of what Christ has done. Bless us, we beseech of thee, and now may the grace of the Lord Jesus, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Spirit be our portion, both now and forevermore. We ask in the Savior's precious name. Amen.